This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by whatever we got in the pantry, Franklin, and whatever we can get delivered. Seems like uh, most of America is on lockdown. What, what are the, what's the what's going on at the Coley House? Well, I have a, uh, a chocolate chip muffin this morning. But yeah, I would say, Joe, the good restaurants of America are still feeding America. You know, they may not have dining areas, but takeout delivery is still available. So make sure to patron your your favorite restaurant. But yeah, I've got a chocolate chip muffin getting me getting me through the day today. You think about the conventional, you know, pizza delivery. But uh, I'm going to try to work hard to um, patronize those places that are kind of traditional, more dining in. You know, some of those casual dining places that are getting a little more hurt in the QSR. So we may be making uh, Olive Garden to go. We may be doing some uh, Outback to go. Who knows? But um, to your point, restaurants are still in business. They are adapting. They are functioning. They're still, still serving their consumers, uh, their communities. And so let's get out there and, and, and patronize them as much as possible. Franklin, uh, we've got a big... Uh, show today. We uh, have a little different format, obviously. Different times call for different measures, but we've got three really great interviews. Uh, Mike Watley, National Restaurant Association, Mike Halen, Bloomberg Finance, Chris Burgoyne, American Hotel and Lodging Association. By the end of this podcast, the audience hopefully will have a very, very good sense of what's going on legislatively in Congress and where the, where the game is today, what's going on across the 50 states and how the industry is positioning itself and get a real good insight into the health and well-being of not only the industry, but some of the larger industry players that are, uh, you know, that are financial leaders in, in the industry. So it's going, to be a, it's going to be a longer than normal podcast. It's going to be chock full of information. I hope the audience finds it helpful, useful, uh, and actionable. And on that note, Franklin, let's do the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, we have three important guests joining the pod today, and they will share their expertise and insights on the crisis at hand. Mike Watley from the National Restaurant Association will update us on how the industry is managing through the public policy aspects of the crisis and how they are interacting with lawmakers at all levels of government to protect the industry. And Chris Burgoyne from the American Hotel and Lodging Association will join us to discuss the challenges facing that part of the hospitality sector, the latest on what's happening on Capitol Hill, and what we can expect going forward. And Mike Kalen from Bloomberg Finance stopped by the pod to discuss the current and future financial status of the industry and the grim challenges being faced by corporate leaders across the country. We'll discuss all of that and look ahead to what may be coming next. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line strategies partners, Franklin Coley and Carson Chandler. And Franklin, it's really just you and me this week um, from our home bunkers, but it has been a week uh, unlike any other, we don't need to emphasize what we all know. But Franklin, from from our perspective, what what are the big takeaways from this week that everyone needs to have their arms around? Yeah, well, I mean, just rewinding the tape, so much has happened in one week. It was this time last week we were talking about France and Spain considering closing restaurants and cafes, and you know now we we're here with around thirty states have closed bars and restaurants to some degree push them to drive through or carry out or delivery across the country. It has been a dramatic uh, change of events and operationally a lot of restaurants have have had to change the way that they sell food and cater to their customers. You know we have entered kind of a new phase now where 
lots of states and localities are moving towards these shelter-in-place orders, with California being the first state to put in place a shelter-in-place order. That follows a number of localities in California that had enacted shelter-in-place orders, and at least one Colorado municipality, and I believe a few in New York. If you look at how these shelter-in-place orders have been working, essentially you're supposed to stay in your home except for essential uh, items, and that is includes restaurant and grocery stores. So, and if you look at New Rochelle, New York, which has been a containment zone, it was an early outbreak site. They called in the National Guard. It has been in lockdown more than other any other community in the country. And even within New Rochelle, restaurants have been able to continue to operate. Obviously, no dining areas, but uh, delivery and takeout. So I think it's likely that as we see these shelter-in-place orders spread across the country to try to, you know, contain or break up the spread of the virus, that you're going to see less freedom of movement uh, within communities. But restaurants that can adapt, their operations will still be able to to stay open. And that's kind of the next phase I think we're entering right now. So Franklin, so at the top, we have a, a number of good interviews. One of the big subjects, especially with, uh, we talked to Chris Burgoyne at the American Hotel and Lodging Association about the paid leave considerations and what's been happening, you know, at, at the federal and, and state and local level. What's the state of play on paid leave? Yeah. So we have the new federal mandate that came in the second coronavirus relief package. And Chris is going to go into great detail on that. But we also need to keep in mind that there are a number of state and local mandates that employers also have to keep track up with. And this does not preempt those. So if you have state and local requirements to go further than the federal requirement, you still have to comply with those. And in fact, we have this week Seattle looking to pass a new paid sick leave requirement uh, in the city there that would make employers responsible for paid leave in the instance of a closure or quarantine. So just need to keep front of mind all those jurisdictions across the country that have existing paid leave requirements or may look to pass new ones and ensure that you're meeting those uh, thresholds as well. And Franklin, you were an early warning signal on uh, the potential implications of the Federal WARN Act. Tell the audience exactly again what that is and does it pertain or apply to much most of the industry players? It's a good question. Maybe maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I think Michael Halen with Bloomberg is going to go in depth about the you know current financial state of a lot of restaurant companies and we've already seen headlines everywhere that restaurants are laying off workers. If you lay off a substantial number of workers, you may trigger the Warren Act. And that's only full time workers. So you know, a number of restaurant companies may may fall under that, but it's something that you need to be looking at and, and paying attention to. There's different ways that you can handle this. You can go on a temporary furlough, for instance, which may not trigger the Warren Act. But if you do trigger the Warren Act, you know, you're responsible for 60-day notice and pay. So, you know, you need to be smart about how you handle this. Additionally, there's a number of state-level many Warren Act. And there's requirements at the state level. And some states have disclosure requirements when you adjust pay by a substantial amount. All things employers need to be mindful of as they're looking to scale down workforce to control costs. And Franklin, you know, the other the other big 
play, I guess, outside of the four walls of the restaurants is what's happening in terms of coming to the aid of the community and neighbors and employees and customers. A lot of industry efforts, uh, a lot of industry leaf efforts underway. Can you shed some light on that? Yeah. In fact, the industry associations have been doing a ton over the past week. Um, There was a call with President Trump, including a number of prominent restaurant hotel brands, as well as their trade associations. National Restaurant Association has sent a letter to the White House outlining what they'd like to see. And Politico's reporting in the first 24 hours, they had, I think, nearly 70,000 restaurateurs and supporters contact the White House and congressional leaders. HLA has released a huge Oxford economic study uh, showing the devastating economic impact. So, All our industry representatives in D.C. and state capitals have been weighing in with lawmakers. We're going to see this third federal relief package is going to include a number of relief items for both workers and for restaurateurs. That's going to take a variety of shapes and forms, probably a direct payment to American workers. $1,200 is what's being discussed right now for for workers that make under $100,000. We're also going to see federally backed loans, uh, particularly to small businesses. We're going to see tax credits to offset all this cost. States and localities are probably going to start deferring tax obligations. Feds are going to defer tax reporting. So you're going to see a whole bunch of different things coming down the pike to try to lessen the blow to companies. I think what companies are continuing to say is, that's great, but we need liquidity right now. And so I think that's going to be the challenge for restaurants and operators is how quickly can policymakers move to get money into restaurants so they can actually, you know, pay these workers, whether it's paid leave or regular wages. And it's going to be a tough time. We've seen a lot of brands laying people off. And, you know, I think this turbulence is going to continue for at least the coming weeks as we we try to sort this out. All right, Franklin. So let's uh, kind of lay the groundwork about uh, about what what's going on out there generally. And so let's let's go to to uh, the first of those interviews when we had Mike Watley from the National Restaurant Association uh, stop by and join us. And so right on cue, as Franklin and I were discussing uh, at the top of the show, we are joined once again by our old friend Mike Watley. Uh, the Vice President of State and Local Affairs for the National Restaurant Association. Mike, uh, I know you are incredibly busy. Uh, I know it's been a week or two weeks or three weeks like no other in either of our careers, but uh, I do appreciate you taking the time to come join us and give our audience kind of the the latest and greatest on what's going on. So I appreciate you really uh, taking the time to, to join us. Well, thanks, Des, for having me on. It's an incredibly busy time, and I know there's a lot of fear and worry out there and, and confusion at times, but we're, we're all in this together, so we're here to support the industry however we can. Well, uh, before I get into some questions, I want to I want to commend you and, and your organization. You guys have um, not only been doing, you know, thankless yeoman work around the clock, but, um, you know, you in particular, uh, just a sense of urgency uh, and a sense of seriousness and professionalism you guys have uh, elicited in the you know your reaction to all this stuff and it's and it's, and it's noticed and much appreciated and uh, like I say I know you're busy and just kudos to to what you and your team have have done so far so Mike let me let me jump into it this morning uh, I saw in Nations uh, Restaurant News some reporting 
around some principles you all put on paper. You called it guidance to lawmakers. Just a long, uh, and it was a, an excellent list of policy areas and initiatives to put on the desk of lawmakers, how they can best help uh, the industry. Can you tell the audience kind of the thinking behind that and, and how you see that working out and what some of the highlights of that were? Sure. It's really a twofold document. So starting last weekend, you had governors who determined for public health reasons that they needed to close restaurants for in-restaurant dining. And there was a lot of concern that when that happened, that could mean a complete restaurant closure, meaning no drive-through or takeout or whatever. And fortunately, the Ohio Restaurant Association was able to convince the governor to keep drive-through, takeout, and delivery open. But as those orders by governors began to move across the country, we wanted to make sure that for our state associations that are faced with a governor or a local health organization saying, hey, we need to close restaurants, that they make sure that they're able to secure those three key operations. It's the delivery, it's the takeout, it's the drive-through potential. Because right now, we want to have restaurants that are open if possible and employees to work if possible. And not to mention the fact that right now, as you can see in the media, or even if you go to your grocery store down the street, grocery stores are overrun at times. And restaurants have an incredible amount of food in, in our inventory that we want to be able to get to communities in need. So we want restaurants to be able to be open in a way that is safe for the community, but that can also help the community. So the first part of that guidance was for states where in-restaurant dining has not been prohibited yet, when that, when and if that happens in a state, encouraging the governor to allow those three key operations of delivery, takeout, and drive-through. The second component of that document looks at the stimulus package and what local governments, what state governments can do to help operators right now who are having unprecedented hard times. And what we're hearing from operators over and over again is it's a cash flow issue. We need money now. It can't be a far off loan in the future. Well, those can be helpful at a certain time and place. Right now it's a cash flow issue and they need help. So the document outlines some key ideas around that in terms of cash grants that can be given to restaurants that are not only potentially closed, but ones that have had significant uh, operational disruptions. We're hearing from operators that uh, traffic is down 90% even day over day. So what we need is cash going to operators who are able to stay open. But it's also having the government, to a certain extent, help their restaurant community through taxation. So if there is a meals tax in a jurisdiction, either suspending that meals tax or allowing restaurants to continue to collect that meals tax, but keep it either indefinitely or for a period of months as almost an interest-free loan so that restaurants can keep that cash and keep their operations going. But it's not just meal taxes. It's sales tax. It's property tax. It's franchise tax. It's all of those things that could be going out to the government right now. We want restaurants to be able to keep on to. One more component is the idea of upcoming government mandates. There is a time and a place for government mandates going into effect, but right now in this crisis, our operators don't have the time to implement new mandates. So if there are mandates that are coming into effect in April, our goal is to prevent local and state governments from putting them into effect. Give us a temporary holiday from those new mandates and allow us to just do what we can to stay open right now. So it's a long and comprehensive document, but we, with talking to our state restaurant association partners and also our members, so 
large national members and also small independent members, it was a list we felt we could all get around. Well, I, I, I think it was really well done. I think the way you laid it out was, and I don't want to use the term user-friendly, but it was, it was, it was in a way that, that legislators, kind of regardless of political you know, persuasion, could get their arms around it. I, I really I was intrigued by the, the taxation piece of just keeping those taxes Instead of sending them away for them to come back at some later point, just keeping them as cash flow. I thought that was kind of interesting and I'd be interested, you know, at some point to see how those conversations are being forwarded at the state level with some of your with some of your state colleagues. But, you know, as you and, you and I talked earlier in the week, you know, I think what you guys have done in terms of trying to protect you know, we have a lot of dining room closures and that, that part of the business is significantly constricted, but keeping that off premise, that delivery, that drive through, that pickup carry out piece, it's kind of our lifeline right now. And I think you guys have done uh, uh, yeoman's work in trying to get elected officials to understand how critical that piece is and have a comprehensive strategy to protect that piece. So a lot going on My, in terms of, you know, what you're seeing on the ground, the, the roles that restaurants are playing and pivoting. You know, what, what's happening out there on the street, the community level? You know, it's really interesting, and I think it proves how resilient restaurants are with any challenge. You know, I'm, in the, I'm in the D.C. area, and looking at what fine dining restaurants are doing in D.C. of realizing they can't have in-restaurant dining, and they've never offered carryout before. They're now creating very interesting and creative carryout menus that they're allowing customers to um, safely have their food in their home. So that's been particularly interesting on the fine dining front. On the many restaurants are looking at it from a can I change from being a restaurant to being almost a quasi grocery store? We're seeing this in DC. I heard from our partners in Indiana. They're seeing a lot of it too. It's hey, we have all this inventory, be it raw meats or produce or bakery products that we may not, because we're not operating as a restaurant currently, be able to produce or sell. But can we turn into a quasi grocery store and allow customers to shop and be able to get food that is inside of restaurants. And if you look at the big restaurant suppliers, they have incredible inventory right now. And they may not have a stream with the grocery stores. Their stream is through restaurants. So restaurants are changing up operations and being very versatile and doing the best they can to, to help their communities and also to keep their employees employed when possible. No, I think that's I think that's really interesting and it's it's creative things. And you're right. Yeah, I often say it's a miracle, amazing how resilient restaurant operators are. Uh, that that's interesting. And again, it's, it's the the buying power, the purchasing power that we have that can be leveraged to, to, to help move the ball forward for, for the community. So that's, that's a very interesting angle. Mike, I know today you all sent uh, an action alert out to, your, uh, to, out to the industry, urging them to contact their members of Congress. What's, what, what's the heart of that message? Sure. So the head of our public affairs division, Sean Kennedy, who's our executive vice president, sent a letter to legislative leaders at the federal level yesterday, as well as the president really outlining what our aid package might look like at the federal level. And it was a combination of a, of a wide variety of issues. But again, it was hitting on that idea of cash flow and being able to stay operational. So it was, it was a big ask. I think there are a lot of big asks going on currently. But for example, one of the ideas outlined in that was to authorize the Department of Treasury to create a $145 billion restaurant and food service industry recovery fund that could be accessed very quickly. Another example was a $35 billion 
for community development block grants for disaster relief. You see these used sometimes during hurricanes or post 9-11, but this really is a disaster. So being able to tap into that for the industry. But it's, it's a wide range of different issues. And we put out an action alert this morning, and we're trying to get everyone involved. It's not just rest on operators. It's employees. It's managers. It's suppliers. It's customers. If you love restaurants, you should be taking action and encouraging Congress to act. And I have a shameless plug here, but for anyone who's listening who has not taken action, I'd encourage them to text the word RECOVERY to 52886, and they can take action instantly. So that's RECOVERY to 52886, and you'll see our action alert and be able to take action in a matter of seconds. Um, we put out an action alert earlier in the week, and it set a record for us as an association. I can tell you we launched our action alert about two hours ago. And it's already surpassed that. So there's an incredible level of interest in this really across the country. And we're encouraging everyone in the industry to not only take action, but to tell your friends, family, and business colleagues to also take action as, as quickly as possible. Well, Mike, that's a good message. And, and fear not, this is a uh, very welcome safe harbor for shameless plugs here on the Working Launch Podcast. <laughs> no, but it, that's that, you know, the level of engagement, you know, it takes a crisis, right? But once, once people are engaged and they feel comfortable engaging, they, they kind of they stay around. You won't lose those people. So your web of influencers, you know, even though it's a terrible, terrible reason why, but your web of influencers has grown significantly. So that's, that's one, you know, bright spot. Mike, you know, in terms of, of timing, and I know you, you, you have the hard job, you, you know, your, your colleagues get to focus on one jurisdiction, you get to focus on 50. But, you know, do you, do you sense timing of what that may look like, or we're going to be debating that for weeks, months, days. What what do you what is your sense? And I you know won't hold you to it. Just you're closer to it than I am. You know, in, in talking to my federal colleagues, it sounds like it's a moving target, and things are changing very quickly. I know there's an incredible sense of urgency to move this quickly. So I, it's not going to be a matter of weeks; it's a matter of days. But that changes by the hour. But and I will say, if you look at past disaster relief packages. We really have to be a part of the conversation as quickly as possible to make sure that we're that we're at the table. And you know, restaurants, everyone's impacted when restaurants are impacted. You know, we're in every community, so it really is important that as many folks as possible take action and reach out to folks to support the industry because the industry supports our communities all across the country. Yeah, and the industry has changed, you know. And I'll, I'll let you go here in a minute, but the, you know, the industry isn't isn't static it's always moving and people just don't cook at home as much as they used to it's a bigger part of people's lives and you're serving a bigger role now and you know, talk about outright wet restaurant closures there's a large segment of the population that does not have access to traditional grocery stores they live in food deserts uh the prices of grocery stores you know there's there's a constituency that is that is always served that needs to be served by, by restaurants and is largely served by restaurants. And when you, when you limit that, you're, you're really cutting off a big piece of the, of the population. So I think there's a definite understanding by policymakers of, of the role it plays and, and the growing role it plays. So anyway, you know, like I say, I'll finish off where I started. You guys have been doing some great work. The tables, the jurisdictional coverage in terms of what's happening in this state or this, this city has been phenomenal. You're, you're pushing every button you can. And again, I, I think the, the sense of urgency around this is, is palpable. And I think you guys have, have answered the bell. So on that note, you know, maybe come back on in a week or two, kind of give us an update on what you're seeing, because I'm sure it'll be different than what we see today. 
Um, and we'd love to have you back and appreciate you, you joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. And, you know, it is a team effort, and I appreciate everyone in the industry who's taking action and our team internally and, and externally as well. But, you know, this is quite a crisis, but we're going to get through it as an industry, and we all need to rally together in our community. So thanks for having me on, and I'll look forward to getting back to you guys soon. Thanks, Mike. So Franklin, we've been we've been talking at length over the last couple of weeks, and of course on, on, earlier on this on this particular podcast about you know the impacts to the industry and what the numbers mean, and you know we work closely with our our friends at American Hotel and Lodging Association. Uh, we've had Troy Flanagan, their head of state and local uh, affairs, on the on the pod multiple times, talking about what's going on uh, across the country in their industry. But they put out some dynamite research. They've always had good research. They've always had a good research arm, but they put out some really significant uh, research here in the last week or two that really encapsulates the impact of what's happening out there. And we are fortunate uh, this morning to be joined by Chris Burgoyne, who is the Vice President of Government and Political Affairs at the AHLA, at the American Hotel and Lodging Association. And Chris, uh, has been there, uh, as he said before we got on the air, seven years, and it feels like uh, probably 70 years after this week. But uh, Chris, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know you're busy. It's early in the morning. I know you guys have been in the trenches, uh, deep in the trenches for weeks, but I do appreciate you taking the time to, to stop by. You bet. Glad to be here, and thank you for having me. Chris, so you know, as, I, as I mentioned that research, can you just tell, you know, in just a minute or two, kind of the big aha findings that in terms of the, the economic impact of what's happening and, and what, what, what you guys are seeing out there? Sure. Well, first, I think it's just, you know, extraordinary times as we try and compare what COVID-19 and the economic impacts and, you know, I'm going to be focusing on the economic impacts, but you know, we want to be clear the human toll is equally as devastating, if not more. So I'll touch on that afterwards. But in the 2001 recession following 9-11, the hotel industry lost about 400,000 jobs uh, due to a decrease in occupancy to about 59%. Um, the average hotel occupancy is around 66% nationwide, uh, generally speaking. And once you go below 62%, you know, most people wouldn't think that that's much of a difference, but it actually flips into a dramatic flip in business owners' cash flow. So after 62%, you know, with the thin margins, they begin to be cash flow negative. During uh, 2001, after 9-11, occupancy went down to 59%. Uh, as we look at the recession from 07 to 09 with the financial crisis, we saw our industry lose about 470,000 jobs uh, due to a decrease in occupancy to about 54%. Um, now, when we look at COVID-19 and the preliminary scenarios that we've seen over the past month plus, we're looking at occupancy in the single digits. And now you're actually seeing hotels close. We're estimating, and this number is probably changing, but anywhere from 2.8 to 3.4 million jobs lost. So if you look at 2001 and you look at the, the Great Recession in 2008, this is both of those combined times two for our industry. So what we're trying to do in Washington and across the country is really just educate lawmakers and the general public on how bad this is economically for our industry and why there's a sense of urgency to act now and why this is different than the past and why we need help from the federal government to ensure that we keep our lights on. We help small businesses become more liquid 
and we keep our people on the payrolls because it, it, it's just that important. Well, that's a, that's a great segue to my next question as you, as you talk to, to lawmakers. And I, that's an industry, you know, a lot of industry, if you're a lawmaker, a lot of industry you don't have tangible uh, experience with, but they, you know, they all travel incessantly and, and they, they have a you know, good feel for the industry. And I, I'm sure all of them are, are receptive in, in various, you know, various degrees. But right now in Congress, we have kind of these three relief packages, one, two, and three, they're calling them for lack of a better term. And I think one and two are through the pipeline and package three is kind of in debate right now. Can you just walk us real quick through, I want to ask you a couple questions about two in particular, but walk us through one, two, and what's happening with three. Sure. So one was really focused on um, COVID-19 and the healthcare epidemic um, and the response to that. So making sure that first responders have the tools that they need to, to handle this crisis, which I think we've seen some significant progress over, over the past several weeks. And I, and I think we're seeing uh, a rapid increase by the day. And, and that's because of phase one. Phase two, which um, losing track of the days, so it just a couple of days ago was passed through the Senate and signed by the White House was a little bit more focused on the American worker uh, as the House defined it, focused on paid sick leave, focused on, you know, things in terms of supporting those that are most vulnerable in terms of food assistance. Because, you know, with all the schools closing, you know, there's many young children who don't have access to healthy meals. There's many elderly folks who don't have access to the things that they normally have through public uh, programs. So really trying to kind of get the social safety nets in place to take care of the American public. In phase three, which um, the initial proposal was released in the Senate yesterday, mostly by Senate Republicans, but today they're going to be negotiating with Senate Democrats, is uh, more focused on the economic uh, aspects of the COVID-19 response in terms of immediate needs and access to capital and in loans for small business. There's also provisions in there that are looking to put money directly into the hands of Americans across the country for two reasons. One, for people to help, you know, pay the mortgage um, and, and, you know, meet their basic needs. And two, because they, they feel that it will help, you know, give certainty to the markets that, you know, when the when this does pass, the economy will, you know, resume uh, as it was as quickly as possible. Chris, tell me a little bit about in, 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 this, in the second relief package, you know, the, the, the paid leave mandate um, and how came, I don't want to necessarily say how that came to be. We know how it came to be, but the conversation around that and do you do you feel that may turn into a, a permanent benefit? Will that be hard to kind of un, unwind the clock a little bit? T- t- tell me about the paid leave mandate. You know, why, why the threshold at 500 employees, you know, exempting the large employers? T- tell me what the world, tell me, tell me about that piece of it. Sure. So there was a lot of confusion around the number of 500 and why 500. You know, most people would think that if you're going to put a mandate in, you would do it for big business and not small business. Um, but my understanding of why legislators did that was because I believe somewhere up to 90% of large employers already provide some sort of paid leave or um, benefits along those lines. So legislators didn't want to provide uh, tax incentive for people to do something that they're already doing, particularly for large businesses. So the focus was on small businesses and how do we help small businesses provide sick leave when we're telling people to stay home? How do they help when, you know, children's schools are closed? So the goal was 
to incentivize and make it a, a bit easier for people to do that by having access to uh, additional cash through tax incentives. And there's been a lot of back and forth with Treasury in terms of how that's being done, but it's really through the payroll tax and giving people, in essence, a line of credit through the Treasury for your quarterly taxes and using that for paid sick leave. You know, I will say there, there's a lot of concerns around how that ended up. You know, uh, many in industry thought it would have been better for the Social Security Administration and the Department of Labor to administer that type of program because as we're seeing in the hotel industry, we're closing. We don't have we don't have a cash flow. We don't have the ability to do what they want us to do. So, you know, many of our businesses are just accelerating their closures because it's something they're not able to do, um, which I, I don't think was the intention. And I think in phase three, they're going to try and make some changes to that to uh, hopefully change that curve. Yeah, that's one of the things that especially acute on the restaurant side of the hospitality spectrum. That's that's an outlay of cash and benefit in a delay in recouping that. And, you know, cash cash is king, right? And cash flow is, is so important. So I know that uh, large parts of the industry, especially at the state level, are looking at ways of, I don't want to say tax holidays, but instead of you know, collecting these sales taxes and other taxes, remitting them to the state and waiting for them to come back in a form of relief. Why not just keep them now uh, so those those operators have, have cash flow? So I know your your state affiliates, many of your state affiliates are involved in that conversation as well. So that's that's going to be really interesting to see how that, that plays out. And speaking of how things play out, you know, the, the, the package that's in front of the Congress now, how do you see that playing out, time frame? I mean, I, I assume we're talking hours, days, not weeks, right, uh, for, for this third package to go through? Yeah, I think the initial expectation or hope was to introduce it yesterday, have debate today, and hopefully pass it by tomorrow. Now, if you had asked me a week ago if Congress could ever move that fast, particularly the Senate, I'd say absolutely not. But in dire times, the response is equally as dire. So um, I, I think that that's the timeline that they're working on. But uh, as of this morning, Leader McConnell said that the Senate will not be leaving until this gets done. And what I've heard from uh, some folks in House leadership is, is that you know, they're working with the Senate right now, which is unusual in kind of getting their adjustments and changes into the bill. Right now, the House is not in session and there's no one from the House of Representatives actually even here in D.C. So in order for them to pass this, they have to come back. Now, obviously, the circumstances are different. Two members of the House have tested positive for COVID-19. So they're a bit concerned about that. One way that they've talked about kind of preventing them all from having to come back is by getting a bipartisan uh, bill through the Senate in which the House can also agree with. So bipartisan, bicameral, and potentially using unanimous consent to kind of just fast track it through the House. Now that is unheard of, but again, it's unheard of in these times that would happen. So I think it's still unclear of how it will end up, but I think those are the scenarios that they're they're looking at right now. Yeah, it is It is an amazing time. It's, it's sad that I guess it takes a global pandemic to uh get our, as you well well, Ellen said, by our bipartisan bicameral process to move quickly and efficiently. But um, one last thing, I know that you guys, the, the hotel industry, when I say you guys, have really been um, front and center and looking for various ways in the community to help governors and mayors and help people on the ground and, you know, offering up you know, properties and donating food. You guys have quickly mobilized in a pretty efficient workmanlike effort. And so kudos to your team for how kind of 
fast you jumped into fray on all that. Thank you. Yeah, our industry is an industry of people. People are the backbone of everything that we do. And, you know, hospitality is what is who we are. And, you know, in times of crisis, whether it's a hurricane or a tornado, uh, our members and our industry are always the first to step up and be hospitable. So, uh, you know, I think our members are looking for any way that they can be helpful and they're looking for partnerships. And I think it's a good reminder to uh, elected officials out there of how vital hotels are to the local economy because, you know, as we've been saying federally, the impact on hotels closing isn't just on hotels. It's on the supply chain. It's on the local government in terms of the taxes that they're not collecting. It's on the employment side. And, and it just, it ripples throughout, you know, every congressional district across the country and every city. So I think, you know, we're trying to find ways to be helpful because that's who we are and that's what we do. Well, you guys are doing a great job. Um, you, you guys have been phenomenal on just keeping everyone, you know, abreast of what's going on. I've been on a number of AHLA webinars. I was on one yesterday uh, that was just some really good one-stop shopping to understand the state of play. So, sure. One sure. thing I didn't one didn't mention, and um, I should have probably worked into the phase three aspect of it, but some of AHLA's priorities and in, in terms of what we're looking for from the federal government, we really have three main asks. One is uh, support for a hospitality workforce relief fund. And the number on that is pretty massive. It's a hundred billion dollars. And the way that we came up with that is, you know, quarterly payrolls for our industry is about $45 billion. So in order for us to keep people on the payroll for what could be a long time in terms of a recovery, we feel that that's what's needed to get into the hands of our employees so that they can stay on our insurance plans, but also, um, you know, still have the furloughed hours in which they can be helpful. Uh, the second in, is the key to keeping the lights on for hotel uh, owners, which is providing flexibility in lending. We feel that about $50 billion is needed to do that. In phase three, there are some things that address this specifically, and we're working on the details there. And then the final is access to, to loans for hotel owners to be able to make sure that there's debt forbearance and, you know, the ability to work with their lenders and cut through some of the red tape that uh, typically would apply, uh, recognizing that this is dire times. And I just want to, you know, also emphasize that, you know, our membership has been engaged at all levels in terms of advocacy on these three points. We were at the White House earlier this week meeting with President Trump and Vice President Pence. Uh, we've had calls with uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senator Schumer. We've had calls with Speaker of the House Pelosi, uh, Leader McCarthy, Scalise. And, you know, most importantly for us, our grassroots have been activated to an unprecedented end. We've had over 33,000 letters written to Congress in the past 48 hours. So that's what the hotel industry is doing to support our members. And trying to, you know, help them get through this time of crisis. And I just appreciate everybody's engagement and the opportunity to tell our story. Well, you guys are doing a great job telling that story and um, a great job being a resource for, for everybody and, and so forth. So, Chris, uh, I know you got a busy day. Back up to the trenches, uh, protecting the industry and uh, educating those uh, smart guys at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. But um, uh, we, we appreciate you taking the time, busy morning, busy time, and, uh, and joining us on Working Lunch and really appreciate your time. Thanks for the opportunity. Stay healthy. As I said earlier in the, uh, in, in the, in the program, we're being joined uh, today by 
Michael Halen, who is the lead uh, restaurant industry analyst for Bloomberg Financial. In political circles, we would call him one of the smart guys. And Michael has uh, one of the leading voices in the financial aspects of this industry and a well-respected contributor to the restaurant conversation, especially when it comes to the financial aspects. Michael, we're seeing in, well, first of all, Thank you for, for joining us on Working Lunch. Really appreciate it. Right into the, the, the mix we go, you know, how did we get here? Uh, are we prepared financially to weather this storm, we being the restaurant industry? Yeah, I mean, I'll just start there. How did we get here? Yeah, thanks for having me, Joe. We've had some, uh, some good back and forth in the past. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, this is wild and unprecedented, right? Um, who could have seen coronavirus coming and being the thing that that ends this uh, 10-year bull run. Unfortunately, the restaurant industry isn't very well prepared right now to deal with this. You know, in terms of the large national chains, the publicly traded chains that we cover, they're sitting there with a lot of debt, right? Don't have a lot of cash right now to, to fund a business that's basically getting shut down. What are we looking at? More than two dozen states uh, are mandating dining room closures and that's increasing by the day. You know, and it's pretty wild. But uh, unfortunately, you know, you know, a lot of people are saying that you couldn't see this coming. But you know, a lot of people have been calling for a recession, right? There's a lot of people have been saying that this economic expansion is long in the tooth, right? It's been 10 years, one of the longest on record, you know. And you know, the Fed and and I think Wall Street haven't really done these chains any favors, right? So the, the Fed is kept interest rates low and putting incentivizing investors to make bets in, in risky assets. They also bailed out the bank a decade ago, right? So uh, investors are looking at risky assets, the airlines, restaurants, and, you know, these, these the restaurant chains are, are benefiting from easy money. And then you have this echo chamber on Wall Street where all the analysts and activist investors and everyone else is convincing everyone to lever up, you know, take on a whole bunch of debt, Use that cash to buy back their shares at 30 times earnings, 25 times earnings, ridiculous valuations. Like that's going to create shareholder value. I think a lot of these imagined teams felt pressured kind of by Wall Street to lever up. Michael, what what is the normal PDE ratio for, you know, the traditional over the last 10, 15 years in the restaurant industry? Yeah. So 15 years, it's been elevated, right? You know, let's just call it somewhere in the, the average is still in high teens in the last 15 years, maybe about 15. The last 10 years have been high teens. But just for, for some color, you know, mature restaurant chains had really never traded above 20 times PE uh, until about 2014. And then since 2014, restaurant PEs have been in the, in the 20 to the 30 range for the fast food names. And granted, you know, you could argue they, they're more highly franchised and that has a, a more predictable cash flow and earnings stream. And so that can support higher valuations. Uh, but we had never seen rest- mature restaurant chains with declining traffic, mind you, you know, trade at 20 to 30 times earnings. And that's what we've had for the last five years or so. And these chains have been levering up and buying back their stocks at those bloated valuations. And not so, everybody, not everybody, but, you know, okay. in general. So what you're saying is they've, they've taken advantage of kind of low interest rates, cheap money, and either exponentially grown or they've built up or they've bought back stock at inflated rates. And now 
uh, we have this incredible downturn and the, the kind of financial stockpiles are not in place to weather the storm. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah. And you know what? Listen, restaurants can only grow as fast as you can find talent, right? So I think buying back stocks is a healthy strategy to return cash to their shareholders, right? But there are limits. McDonald's has been responsible. They're 93% franchised and they're only levered at, you know, three times uh, EBITDA. Right, where while some of their competitors are uh, franchise competitors are, are levered six times EBITDA. We have Darden who barely has any debt on the balance sheet, right? And they've been outperforming. So there's definitely been a, adults in the room that have done the right thing by growing their business the right way, you know. But some so, of these other chains that that haven't performed as well probably felt more pressure to you know use cash to buy back shares so what's going on michael and, and we don't have to name any names or anything but you know if you're if you're looking at the the top 10 top 15 companies you know what's the conversation right now what what decisions are they having to make right now and again it could be qsr casual dining what's that cfo and c c-suite team talking about outside of restaurant operations in terms of what they do and what they do for money right now what's that conversation yeah so well, there's a whole lot of things. I, I think the first thing everyone is concerned about is how do you keep your employees healthy? How do you keep your guests healthy, right? Strengthening sanitation measures, making sure that sick workers don't come into work, retraining your staff, you know, making sure your managers are providing a good example, right, by not coming in when they're feeling sick. I think that's the number one concern is, is really just the health of your employees and your guests. From there, how do you survive, right? You know, there's a few things. Number one, with sales, you got to shift to takeout and delivery, right? I mean, as I mentioned, more than two dozen states are mandating dining room closures. It's spreading a lot of cities and municipalities across the country have done the same thing. Uh, you know, this is pretty, you know, where I am in New York, in New Jersey, you know, New York, California, we're pretty much doing a good job of social distancing, not so much down there in Florida uh, where, you, where you are during spring break, but, you know, these social distancing measures are spreading across the country. So if you're not shifting to takeout and delivery, you know, your entire business is going away. Uh, unfortunately, that's not a big enough portion of your business to make up for what you're losing, and a lot of your stores are probably going to be cash flow negative even if you do make that shift. So then you're going to have to cut expenses wherever you can, you know. So chains are reducing their employee per sh employees per shift, uh, reducing their ad spend. You know, they're, they're cutting down their menus and, and simplifying their menus. You know, some of the things that they're doing in-store, uh, cutting all non-essential spending, you know. And then at the corporate level, you know, what we're seeing is a ton of companies drawing, maxing out their revolving credit facilities, spending their dividends and buybacks um, if need be, which is most of them. You know, there's a few with good balance sheets. I mentioned, you know, McDonald's, Starbucks, Shake Shack, Chipotle, Cracker Barrel, Darden, Texas Roadhouse are the ones that we cover. You know, those are, what is that? That's about eight companies out of the 18 we cover that are in pretty good financial position. So, you know, Starbucks actually mentioned that that they can buy back stock and they, they increase their uh, allotment, you know, that's to me. That's a good thing. I know it may not look good to the public, but I'd much rather have that situation where some of these companies, their stock, they were buying it back 400, 500 percent higher just a month ago, and now they can't buy it back 
because they just don't have the means, right? So um, most of them are suspending dividends, buybacks, drawing down the revolver, slashing all non-essential spending at the corporate level too, reducing capex, and and shutting down store development just so they can survive. Michael, one quick question. Who who do you think is in better position here going forward, the, the casual dining sector or the quick service sector? In terms of sales and margins, you know, generally speaking, fast food's in, in a better spot. So they do 50 to 70% uh, of their business through the drive through right? So they're, dine- they're not affected by dining room closures. Fast food chains uh, also have a pretty good delivery business, you know, so they can definitely weather the storm sales-wise. Also being franchised, your margins aren't going to take the same hit that they would if you own and operate all your restaurants. So, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, franchisors, however, are going to have to support their franchisees. You know, McDonald's has already been out there talking about maybe giving rent breaks uh, to their franchisees at sublease stores. You know, we think royalty and ad fund breaks as well. So that cut expenses by about 20% of sales for franchisees and really kind of help them survive through this because a lot of them aren't very well capitalized because franchisees have been forced to upgrade stores. They've been forced to incentivize to build stores more aggressively, you know, remodels, tech improvements, all that kind of stuff. So franchisees are, are kind of strapped heading into this. That being said, casual dining may be in even worse shape because they primarily own all of their stores. And so there's a whole lot of operating leverage in the model. So that means when sales go down, margins go down as well. You know, casual dining right now, especially the ones that are highly levered, are the ones that are really kind of struggling and really are going to need some sort of government assistance uh, throughout this. Michael, um, from from your perspective, from where you sit literally on Wall Street, been to your offices and you're not too far from Wall Street, a couple, you know, 20, 30 blocks. But um, what are the actions that federal or you know, state and local from your perspective, what should governments be doing? What's the best thing they can be doing to, I don't want to say solve this problem, but help alleviate many of the symptoms of this problem? Yeah. So as you know, Joe, I'm not uh, big on bailouts. I'm a, I'm a free markets guy, right? But the government shut down the industry. So, uh, and the industry employs a, a big chunk, more than 10% or so of the total employment in the United States. So, uh, you know, I think help it is definitely necessary in this case, you know. Um, you know, I think the first thing they they needed some grants for restaurants still paying their employees. You know, I think Garden is doing the right thing, still paying their 190,000 employees. Um, those employees aren't taking unemployment benefits, right? So to me, that seems like kind of an even trade. Uh, we think rent and mortgage and and some loan assistance would really help out right now because if the restaurants you know, they close their doors, they're still paying rent, you know, and, and here in the Northeast, they're paying exorbitant rents, uh, even though their doors are shut. So uh, we think help on the rent and mortgage would really uh, help restaurant owners out. You know, we want to see some tax breaks uh, and credits, you know, especially the payroll tax. We think that could help the restaurants as well as their employees, you know, and then loans. You know, we need to make cash available from the government to corporations to the small business association because there's a lot of franchisees out there struggling a lot of independents people forget independents make up about half restaurants 40 percent of the restaurants in the united states right so there's a lot of small business owners out there that that need and deserve some help so uh we think those are some of the the best ways 
to kind of get some, you know, relief to some of these business owners that really need it right now. I guess, Michael, one, one final, final question is, you know, what, what do you see kind of look across the, the horizon a little bit? What, what do you see over the next six months? Are a lot of the big guys, are they all going to survive or some going to go by the wayside? I, you know, I don't necessarily want you to name names per se, but what does it look like six months from now? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a big, big, big variable here that nobody knows is how long this lasts. Right. There's some hope that this is a seasonal and that the warm weather and sun will kind of help us battle through and, and, and shorten the timeline. Um, but if we're still in lockdown in six months, there's going to be a lot of pain. There's going to be a lot of bankruptcies. I, I think the other variable, obviously, is how much assistance the, the government gives the industry. I think something to, to pay attention to in the big companies that we cover, you know, when we think about who's going to survive, it's going to be. You know, those eight companies I mentioned that have really strong balance sheets. And and Darden has really been a leader through this. You know, Gene Lee uh, isn't taking a salary. You know, they grew their business by increasing sales the hard way, right? Like getting more customers into the restaurants, providing them with a great experience so they come back, boosted their margins that way, right? So they didn't take on a lot of leverage. And so they actually have a billion dollars of cash right now that they that they can use to help weather the storm. So they're the adults in the room. And they're still at a cash burn rate of 40 million a week, which only gives them about six months, right? So one of the most well capitalized companies, mind you, they're company owned, they're not franchised. So their expenses are a lot higher than franchise chains. But in the casual dining world, the adults in the room only have enough cash to go for six months. So we're going to get some really ugly earnings calls next month. We don't necessarily expect there to be debt covenants breached. Uh, at the end of the first quarter. But I think uh, a lot of these debt covenant of the, these restaurant, publicly traded restaurant chains are going to be breached at the end of the second quarter. So it's ugly out there. And, and the longer this lasts, the uglier it gets. Well, if somebody wasn't already depressed, uh, listening to that forecast and send them, send them right around the bend. Man, that's, uh, that's some sobering, sobering news, but it's, you know, the, it is what it is. The facts are facts and you, you can't, you can't hide it, you know, and we'll see, hopefully, hopefully we can get all, all sides of federal and state government kind of functioning together to help bridge this because this is an industry unlike any other you know we're not a capital intensive industry sometimes we're not even really an industry at all we're this you know massive archipelago of, of millions of little islands and um you know it's hard to it's, it's hard to sp- spread a stimulus package in an industry like this it's a lot harder than airlines or or the banks where it's a fixed number and it's fixed assets and so forth so it's going to be an interesting struggle not only financially uh, for these companies inside the restaurant trying to stay open and stay functioning, but our interaction with state and local officials and, and, and all that's in concert is going to be really critical to the survival of a, a lot of these companies. So dire times, my friend, and uh, I know you're on the job. I've uh, seen some of your writings over the last uh, couple of weeks and uh, as always spot on, but I really appreciate you you coming on the pod, bringing your expertise, your angle, your insight to the to the audience, and uh, let's stay in touch on this. And as things progress uh, in the next few weeks or months, maybe you come back and, and and join us again. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. And you know what? Let's let's end on a high note. One thing I left out on your last question is that there is going to be opportunities and there is going to be market share shifts, right? So uh, you know, if you look at the press over the last few weeks and you look at reactions on Twitter. 
uh, about what some of these restaurants are doing, you know, you see a lot of positive reaction uh, towards Darden because they're continuing to pay their employees, same with Taco Bell, whereas there's been some negative reaction against Pizza Hut and Wendy's about some of their uh, employment policies, right? So uh, all that's going to matter. Also, crisis creates opportunity, right? So some of these chains that are going to have to, you know, chains that we cover that are going to have to close stores, it's going to create opportunities for, you know, some of these more well-capitalized chains, right? Also for some independents. Because this is a business that has very low barriers to entry, right? Anyone can go and open a store. So, uh, you know, if you're a strong independent or uh, regional chain that's been responsible with your balance sheet, uh, you know, when we get through this, you're going to have a lot of good opportunities. So it's not all bad. It's, you know, I, I have, we have some chains that are in trouble, franchisees, unfortunately, that are in trouble as well. Uh, but, you know, as we like to say, you know, when I was on the trading floor, in a prior life, uh, crisis creates opportunity. That it does, my friend. And, and you know, I've said it over and over, and I'm not trying to be um, sycophant here, but, you know, that the industry is, it's amazing, the resiliency of this industry. And, and um, you know, so, so my money's on them. Um, they, they, they always seem to find a way to figure it out and, and survive. And this is probably the, the toughest test ever. I'm sure we'll see our way clear. So, Michael, again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, really incredible insight in uh uh, kind of setting the stage and uh, look forward to chatting with you again soon. So Franklin, you know, I don't know what stone is left unturned after uh, those conversations with Mike, Mike and Chris, but a um, couple, couple interesting issues to kind of for listeners to th- look ahead, you know, in the next you know, days and weeks in terms of escalating conversations. You, you know, it was mentioned a few times uh, in the pod about the direct payments from Congress, right, to American citizens. I know Chris Burgoyne mentioned that. You mentioned it. That sounds like universal basic income. It sounds like Andrew Yang's position. Andrew Yang actually quipped on uh, one cable news program. You know, I was calling for universal basic income my entire presidential campaign, which ended in February. I didn't think it would be coming as soon as March. So, yeah, no, it's pretty close. And I mean, it, you know, that's a, that was a foreign, crazy fringe concept. Still kind of is in a lot of ways, but we're basically going to have it here. And so I think that may over the longer term kind of change attitudes around that type of program. I think attitudes may be changed as a result of this around paid leave. And I think around our healthcare system more generally, you know, we could be coming out of this saying the government needs to be more involved in aspects of healthcare because clearly we are unprepared for this, right? So that could, that could have all sorts of implications in the way that, that the healthcare system changes. So, I, you know, I don't even think we know what all the changes will be, but I think we do know that our consumer habits and our political tendencies and our Political worldviews are probably going to be different on the back end of this, and that's going to have all kinds of implications. Franklin, uh, pivoting to politics, there's been um, accusations. A lot of people think that people are playing politics with with this issue to a terrible extent, but we see it coming from the left uh, this week. Rock founder Saru Jairman, one of your favorites, didn't didn't let a global pandemic get in the way of her agenda. What did what did they do this week? Yeah, they're setting up a fund for tipped workers, and uh, I think giving them two hundred and thirteen dollars in uh, 
in assistance, which obviously plays off of the 213 federal tip wage. Um, we've seen Fight for 15 also go after, you know, major brands and, and a variety of items. So, yeah, no, labor advocates are at home with cabin fever just like everyone else and, and dreaming up new ways to uh, – to elevate their issues. So, yeah, that all continues. I will say that is we we have seen it because we watch these things, but I don't think that's I don't think the general public is resonating at this point. Another another local issue that came up in terms of, you know, under the the context of using the coronavirus as a political platform in Seattle, uh, they're using it as, as a reason to revisit the Amazon tax out there. Hey, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah, and that would be a permanent tax that would um, go in forever, essentially, and fund social housing and other Green New Deal priorities. That's from our uh, good friend, the uh, socialist councilwoman out there that uh, looks for a good opportunity. So the other thing, Joe, that we've seen headlines on this week that we've talked about before is, in fact, a Bloomberg News headline, but single-use plastics all of a sudden are back in vogue. Yeah, nobody's talking about plastic fork bands and straw bands anymore, right? They certainly are not. Um, in fact, you know, I think a lot of folks would would like to have disposable single-use items right now, particularly, you know, if you only have takeout and delivery and, you know, you definitely don't want reusables, you know, it, it, places where there have been bans in effect, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense in this in this coronavirus era. Yeah, so it's 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 been an interesting week. I'm, uh, you know, every every day brings new new headlines, new challenges. Um, but the, the beat goes on. Uh, the industry is working hard to adapt and adjust. The political ball keeps bouncing. And so there, there will be issues uh, coming coming down the pike. Uh, and for everybody in our audience and, and you as well, Franklin, I hope everybody stays home, stays safe and uh, stays tuned. Uh, and we'll do our best to keep you updated on the latest and greatest and hope everybody has a has a, a best week possible. See you next week. 